Julius Caesar had his Marcus Brutus. They were besties as they grew up in the waning years of the Roman Republic. But Brutus became more and more concerned when he saw his childhood friend, Julius, taking more and more authority upon himself. It, it was beginning to look more like an empire than a republic. So in response, along with 11 other senators who loved the republic, Brutus assassinated his childhood friend, Julius. As Julius had his Brutus, David had his Ahithophel. You remember the dark days of David's life when he committed adultery and murder and broke all of the Ten Commandments all at one time. This was the promise that the Lord gave David through the prophet Nathaniel, 2 Samuel chapter 12. Why have you despised the word of the Lord, David, by doing evil in his sight? Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So it was. For all of the rest of David's life, there was pain, anguish, conflict, turmoil in his family consequences because of his sin. It began with his son Amnon who raped David's daughter, his, uh, that is Amnon's half-sister, Tamar. David refused to take responsibility, to see that justice was carried out on that particular occasion. And so Tamar's full brother, Absalom, that handsome prince of a man, took matters into his own hands and murdered his half-brother, Amnon. Absalom fled leaving Jerusalem. Years later, having been estranged from his father David all this time, he came back to Jerusalem. Ever the, uh, the, the, uh, the conniving um, opportunist, Absalom took over his father's rule, forcing David to flee. And in chapter 16 of the book of Second Samuel, we read this. 
Then Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, entered Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. Now you may not know the story of Ahithophel, but this is one of those, wait a minute, kind of moments. Ahithophel was a longtime loyal friend of the king. Ahithophel was David's sage and strategist. Ahithophel was David's right-hand man. And here it is as if he was jumping ship, leaving David in the lurch, abandoning the king, betraying the king, and locking arms with Absalom. In the next chapter, we find that Absalom turned to Ahithophel and asked him for some advice. What should he do in light of David fleeing the city? Such and such Ahithophel counseled. And in chapter 17, verse 14, we read, The Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. And in response to him being rejected, Ahithophel, verse 23, saw that his counsel was not followed. He saddled his donkey and arose, went to his home, to his city, set his house in order, and strangled himself. Thus, he died. Julius had his Brutus. David had his Ahithophel. Jesus had his Judas. This morning in our continuing study through the Gospel of John, we are in the middle of chapter 13. Chapter 13 marks the beginning of seven chapters that declare the last 24 hours in Jesus' life. Many conversations, um, many events that take place, many of which John records for us. It begins with the Feast of Passover. We read elsewhere in the Synoptic Gospels that Jesus had instructed a couple of his men to go and prepare a place for them to celebrate that particular meal, and they did so dutifully. Among their preparations, they would have placed water in a basin and a towel next to the front door. But this particular meal was private. Now, it was customary. It wasn't a requirement. It was customary um, for a, a, a Jewish host to wash the feet of guests coming into the home. But because this was a private meal. There was no slave to wash the feet. As they came into the home, the disciples were probably noticing there was no slave to wash their feet. 
But no matter, they weren't going to do it to one another. The synoptic gospel writers inform us that they had visions of greatness and grandeur in their mind. They were jockeying for position. They weren't interested in serving or doing anything like that. So they reclined at table with dirty feet. Oh, they had taken a shower, a bath, prior that afternoon. They were, they were clean in that sense, but just walking through the streets made of dirt. They would have at least been dusty, if not dirty, by stepping in animal products and such. They sat down with dirty feet regardless. And as we looked last week, chapter 13, verse 4, Jesus got up from the supper laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Verse 5, Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And you could have heard a pin drop. The disciples were silent, embarrassed, humiliated, no doubt feeling pangs of guilt. Until Jesus came to Peter. And then loudly did he declare, Lord, <laughs> you wash my feet? Are you kidding me? No way. Jesus returned, verse 8. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Verse 10. He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. But he's completely clean. And you are clean. But not all of you. In this accounting of the supper and and how it begins with this foot washing. I said last week that there are, there are two main points here. The first is vertical. The second is horizontal. The first has to do with the foot washing um, and, and what it points to. Here in verse 10, Jesus reveals the, the, the fact that that. As these men came bathed. So spiritually, as we come to Christ, we are clean. Not because of anything that we do, not because of anything we present to the Lord. He cleans us. And totally. And we are forgiven of our sin. Every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is forgiven of their sins, past, present, and future. That does not mean that we are not sinners. Oh, we still. Here's where we need spiritual foot washings. The dirt, the grime, the muck that we pick up from the world, sometimes that we intentionally walk through, needs to be cleaned up. 
that affects our relationship, our communion, our intimacy with our Savior. Now, these two aspects of Jesus um, cleansing us are revealed in uh, John's first epistle. If you want to turn there with me, 1 John chapter 1. He, he, he puts side by side this whole body cleansing and the foot washing cleansing together. Verse 7, chapter 1. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, end of the verse, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from most of our sin. Is that how your Bible reads? If it does, please throw it away. Because the real Bible says, cleanses us, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all, all sin. Now, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, subsequent to this, this cleansing, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us because you are still a sinner as am I. Verse 9. Nevertheless, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, there is a whole body cleansing that Jesus brings to every believer. And then there is the daily foot washing cleansing that is there's our first lesson in this in this uh, uh, in, in this event of the foot washing. It has to do with our, our vertical relationship with the Lord. Now, now we see as we turn to to our text this morning in verse twelve, we see the horizontal aspect of the lesson that uh, Jesus leaves for it. Follow along with me as I read our text, John chapter thirteen, beginning at verse twelve. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak to all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. He who receives me 
See, it's him who sent. Point number one in your notes. Doing as the master does. After Master Jesus finished washing the disciples' feet, he reclines at table again and then begins to talk to them. He wants them to see the significance of what has just happened before them. He's seeking to move them in a particular direction. Now, in their mind, they have visions of greatness, of grandeur. They want a place in Jesus' kingdom. They know he's the teacher. They know he is the Lord. They want to be right beside him. They want to see all of the action, and they want to enjoy the accolades thrown at Jesus. They have no intention of serving. They simply want to be marked as part of the greatness of Jesus. Based on a survey of, of uh, nearly 300 college students, psychologist here in the United States reported the desire for greatness and satisfaction in life by these students. She also reported that they perceived very little connection between greatness and service. She commented, this is a generation accustomed to being served, not serving. I think she might be under something. Now, I, I expect that kind of attitude among the unredeemed. I also expect that those claiming the name of Christ will act like him. Merle Tenney, in his commentary on John, remarked about the disciples on this occasion, quote, they were ready to fight for a throne but not for a towel. D.L. Moody observed, quote, there are many of us who are willing to do great things for the Lord, but few of us that are willing to do little things. Jesus, here, I need you, I need you to observe that Jesus is um, displaying humility and love in a superlative degree. Now, now the foot washing is, is one thing. That, that is what has just happened in front of these disciples as, as they watched, aghast, that this, this, this one, the Lord, the Master, would stoop so low as to do the slave work of foot washing. What they had not yet seen was the work of Christ on Calvary's cross where he stooped yet lower to become sin on our behalf. To compare the two, foot washing and the cross, it is to compare um, a thimble full of pond water 
and place it next to a roaring rapid coming out of the mountains full of spring melt from the winter snow. Oh, there are similarities. Yes, yes. You can't adequately compare them. They don't compare. Nevertheless, these two events display the deep love and humility of Christ. Back in chapter 13, verse 1, John says, Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. It's foot washing. Indeed, the cross displayed this kind of love by Christ for his own. Now, I want you to look with me at verse uh, 13 and 14, if you would, please. Verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, now, now notice this, first of all. In verse 13, he mentions of, uh, they, Jesus mentions of their perception of him. They call him teacher or rabbi and Lord. Jesus says, well, you're right. That's, that's who I am. That's accurate. But Jesus amps up that assessment of him in the next verse. The Greek makes the word, the words teacher or rabbi, and Lord, superlative by the use of an article. And you'll see it in, the, in your text. Jesus identifies himself as the Lord and the teacher, the rabbi. There is no one else. He is alone in the category of teacher-ness or lord He is the teacher's teacher, the rabbi's rabbi, the Lord of all lords. And then he uses uh, an if-then kind of argument to to, uh, motivate, uh, push his disciples to a different mindset. Not to just think about themselves and what they want, but to do as Jesus has done for them. Now, um, I, I, I need to make clear that in this foot washing that Jesus has just completed, he is not prescribing the service of foot washing. He is prescribing service like foot washing. He wants his disciples to do as he has done, to serve them, looking at the needs, the opportunities before them, and serving the people around them. Verse 15, I gave you an example that you should do as I did. 
Verse 16 opens up with that familiar, truly, truly, or verily, verily. Amen, amen. It, it's Jesus' way that we've seen repeatedly through the Gospel of John. It's Jesus' way to say, guys, take out a notepad, take out a pen, take, take down what I'm going to say. This is muy importante. Ah, you need this. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who sent greater than the one who sent him. He's describing who they are. They are slaves. They are sent ones. If Jesus is the teacher extraordinaire, if he is the Lord of all lords, and you're but a slave, you're but a sent one. You are under obligation to do as he has done, to serve as he has served. Let me look for just a minute at these two words that Jesus uses for his many. First, he calls them a slave. I put these verses in your notes. You can look them up later. Just listen. 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own, Paul writes. You have been bought with a price. If you're a believer in Christ, you, you don't have the capability, you don't have the position to do whatsoever you choose to do because you are now a slave of the living Lord. Romans chapter 6. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So now, present your members as slaves of righteousness. If Jesus is the Lord, if Jesus is the teacher, I am under obligation as a slave, one who has been purchased by him. I am under obligation to do as he commands. And he says, verse 15, I gave you this example that you should do as I did to you. Serve. Serve one another. The, the, the second label that Jesus gives to his men as sent ones was officially given to them after the resurrection. Up to, this, up to, up to the time of the resurrection, Jesus, um, well, and more specifically his ascension, um, up, up to that, that period of time in Jesus' life, um, and existence, he, he, he refers to his men, and the scriptures refer to his, his men as, as disciples, followers. Then after the resurrection, <clears throat> after his ascension, he commissions his men and says, you now are given a responsibility. And the responsibility was to declare his death, Jesus' death, and his resurrection, and its meaning. Why is this important? 
One who is sent on a mission with a message has a responsibility to the one who sends. In this case, the disciples who were then to become the apostles, and the, apostles, the word apostle simply means sent one, the apostles had a responsibility to the Lord to declare what the Lord gave them. He gave them a message regarding Jesus' death, regarding Jesus' resurrection, and what that meant. Calling men and women to repent and believe. Howard Hendricks once said, actually I heard him say this a couple of times, may I never forget that I signed on as his galley slave and his reward comes at the end of a faithful tour of duty. The Lord called his men as prophets. He gave them a message and a responsibility. Declare my message. The beginning of the book of Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah re re recalls uh, this particular encounter that he has with the Lord. It says in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Jeremiah writes, Oh, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak. Because I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth. Because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. One who is sent, just like a slave, is obligated to obey the one who sends. I have a task. I have a responsibility. Specifically in the horizontal plane, I have a responsibility to love and to serve the people around me. I am called to be an obeyer. Second page of your notes. Now we'll talk about the betrayer. Point number one, doing as the master does. Point number two, not doing as the master does. Now we're going to be talking about Jesus's Judas. In our text, verse hmm, 18. Jesus says, I, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. There's a lot of confusion when it comes to Judas 
Iscariot. Um, confusion in, in, in the sense that, well, um, if, if, if God is sovereign, which he is, then he had to force Judas into this mold. And that's an untrue statement. Judas did what he did of his own free will. He chose to do exactly and only what he wanted to do. Describes the choices that we make. We always and only do what we most want to do at a particular moment. That's why we need the Holy Spirit living in us to change our want tour. That's why we have to be, we have to have our nose in the scriptures all the time and our heart in prayer all the time. That there might be that continual transformation so that I might be as I am in Christ. Judas was not coerced in any way to betray Christ. He wanted for his, his own um, self-aggrandizement, his own position, his own benefit, his own profit. He wanted to do Even something nasty like betraying Christ. I know the ones I have chosen, Jesus said. Jesus chose Judas. He chose all the others as well. He chose Judas knowing fully the choices that Judas would make. He knew he would be the turncoat. He knew he would be the Brutus, the Ahithophel, the Benedict Arnold. He knew that Judas would betray him. But here's the wonder of it all. Jesus also knew that he would take that nefarious plot by Judas and use it for the eternal good of his Jesus had full knowledge of what would happen, what was, what was happening. And he quoted from the book of, uh, uh, from the Psalter, uh, chapter 41, quoting it at the end of verse 18. Keep your finger here in John and uh, turn over to, to, uh, to the Psalter. Psalm 41. And find uh, verse Seven. Psalm forty-one, verse seven. Now, this is this is David writing a thousand years before Jesus, and he and he writes, "All who hate me, David writes, all who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt." Verse nine. Even my close friend in whom I have trusted. 
who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. My close friend. The one whom I have welcomed into my house. We've eaten meals together. We've shared the most intimate of moments together. And this one has lifted up his heel. It's as though he was squashing me. Stepping on a, a statue or a picture of me. Desecrating me. Humbling me. Hurting me. Was David writing about Ahithophel? Quite possibly so. We don't have enough detail to know for certain. Now turn with me over to chapter 55 in the Psalter. Psalm 55, find verse 12. This is the aftermath of the betrayal of the betrayer. In David's life. Psalm 55, verse 12. It is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates, hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. You were besties. And you stabbed me in the back. Hithophel was a type of G. As David was a type of Christ. David reeled from the betrayal of Ahithophel. Jesus did the same with Judas. Though Jesus was not surprised like David was surprised. Jesus knew that it was coming. He was prepared. And in that preparation, he sought to prepare his own, prepare the eleven. Verse 19. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Jesus didn't want to leave his men completely undone because... This travesty took place. Jesus' men did not know who the, uh, the, the perpetrator would be, who the betrayer would be. If you turn with me over to, uh, to, to Matthew's chapter 26, verse 20. Uh, the uh, Apostle Matthew gives us uh, a, different, a, a different perspective here on, on this event. Um, evening came, Jesus reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. Verse 21. As they were eating, he said, Truly, 
I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each began to say to him, Surely not, not, not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Judas, Judas who was betraying him, said, oh, Surely not. It is not I, Rabbi. And the man with his hand in the proverbial cookie jar now steps out on the stage as a thespian. And all of the other disciples don't know who it is. Oh, this Judas was good. He bamboozled everyone except Jesus. And Jesus made his disciples aware who it was, even though they were still confused. Who, who, who dipped their bread in the sauce with Jesus? Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives... Whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Here's Judas, who has rejected Jesus. And the eleven, they are the ones who have received him. They have believed. They have repented. They have, they have begun that process of removing the desire for greatness that they might serve one another. They're in that process. By way of application, I had two, two main points this morning, so I have two points of application. Second, I mean, first, do the dirty and mundane work. I could put a period there. That's what we're called to do, to be. People that are servants, willing to do the dirty work, the mundane work. For in so doing, we are serving Christ. Lord of all pots and pans and things, since I've no time to be a, a saint by doing lovely things, or watching late with thee, or dreaming in the dawn light, storming heaven's gate. Make me a servant by getting meal and washing up the plates. Ordinary, mundane, little things. As a believer in Christ, that's what I'm called to do and to be. Because I am his slave, and one sent by him. The if-then argument. 
if he is the teacher and the Lord, he has the, ob- he has the right to impose an obligation on me. I must. I must, sir. Colossians chapter 3. All right, whatever, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. We need, we need not um, belittle the, 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 the small, the mundane things that surround us, that occupy our time. Or in doing that, giving, giving my all in serving his people, I am serving Christ. Second, remember that God is the sole sovereign. I, I've never, I've, I've never taken a, a, a very hard and exacting look, but. But I dare say that if we were to look at every page of Scripture somewhere, we would see God's sovereign hand on every page. He is the one alone that is large and in charge of the entire cosmos. Even of betrayers like Judas. Not that Jesus coerced him to do something against his will. No, this was something that he wanted to do. And yet, he used that evil, wicked, nefarious activity of Judas for our eternal good and his eternal glory. Christians from um, long ago, even to today, Cherish Romans 8.28. Many of you have that memorized. You ought to have that memorized. We know, Paul writes, that God causes all things to work together for good for all people. Does your Bible say that? If it does, please throw it away. That's not what it says. This is what it says. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God is in the business of providentially bringing together all of those nasty, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad things in our life that afflict us, that torment us, that hurt us. He is in the business of bringing all of these things under his lordship for our good and his glory. Psalm 103. I love this psalm. It's so simple. It's so concise. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. 
over obeyers and betrayers. Let's pray. A good and glorious God, how we thank you for your mercy and your kindness. You have lavished your grace upon us. We are so unworthy of all that you have trusted to us. Thank you for forgiveness of sin. Thank you for the ability to see sin, to confess sin, to repent of sin, and that you cleanse us daily, moment by moment. You might have that personal, intimate fellowship with you. Father, use us for your glory in this dark and darkening world. Pray this in the name of the Master who raised himself from the dead. Amen.